Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of February the 1st, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And today I'm joined again by Josh Blank, Research Director for the very same Texas Politics Project. Good afternoon, Josh. Oh, thanks for having me back. Well, <laughs> we missed you. Well, Both of the previous guests sent their regards. Well, I'm glad I still have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, you have this one anyway. Right, at least uh, this one. <laughs> so, um, so we had Josh back today. The The big event so far this week, if you're in the world of Texas politics, is Governor Greg Abbott's State of the State speech. Uh, we're recording Tuesday midday, and he gave it last night. Uh, and I say last night, and there's an asterisk on that. Like so many other things, the speech was not the usual State of the State. It was delivered in the early evening via a network of local stations owned by Nexstar uh, and delivered from a location, a, a business in Lockhart, Texas, rather than the usual format, which is to be done live at the Capitol uh, before the legislature. And, you know, in one of the you know various kind of oddities that I'm sure will come up in this or may come up in our discussion, you know, legislators were piped in via video platforms which were displayed in a grid, and I, and I think with cutaway shots. Is that right? I mean, it looked like... There were a few cutaways, but not too many. Yeah, I mean, well, you don't want to get away from the main show, but I digress. Well, from, except for the... Well, I, the but cut- I get ahead of myself, so... The, um, right, the, yeah, we'll come back. So, so it, was, it was an unusual state of state that led to all kinds of speculation that maybe we'll get to as well. Um, but to you know, lay the groundwork, as most listeners to this will know, you know, this is an address that during legislative session years is typically used by governors uh, to announce what are the so-called emergency items. And I think like, it seems like, you know, most every legislative year at some point or another, you have to you have to explain why emergency is kind of a term of art here. Um, you know, these items are constitutionally defined as, quote unquote, emergencies because they have a special status in the process. The Texas Constitution uh, prohibits the House and the Senate from passing legislation during the first 60 days of a regular session unless each chamber suspends the rule by a vote of four-fifths of the membership, which, of course, isn't unheard of for certain housekeeping things, but substantively doesn't, doesn't really happen very often. And that rule holds unless the legislation is de- is a, applies to a matter that is declared by the governor to be an emergency. And for the footnote readers among you, that's an Article 3, Section 5 of the Texas Constitution. Now, as Governor Abbott illustrated yesterday, and as you should be able to take from this, what constitutes an emergency is really anything that the governor wants to be prioritized in, in a given session. So if a bill is related to a governor's emergency items, member can, de- can decide to vote on it in, earlier in the session to move it through the process earlier. So you know, in, in most ways, you know, most of the time when I think about this and when we talk about this at the, 
you know, from a, from a academic, but also a practical, uh, perspective, the emergency items, you know, give the, 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 the governor a shot early in the session at a kind of procedural, to, you know, at a, at, a, at a procedural effort to manage the agenda or to try to, to shape the agenda by setting these things aside that can be handled earlier in the session when everything else essentially has to wait. You know, less procedurally, and it's also a mechanism for signaling that is, as we saw last night, uh, I think, related to the governor's ability as the head of state and as the you know, the, the person in state government who occupies the quote unquote bully pulpit to signal to other political actors what he or she is interested in. So last night, the governor laid out five areas that he classified as emergency items, broadband expansion, passing laws to prevent cities from defunding the police, bail reform. And he's in one of the few areas of real specificity, he cited the Damon Allen Act, which we can talk about. Uh, in probably the broadest category, he talked about the need for the, uh, the the emergency, quote unquote, of election integrity. And then he talked about civil liability protections for individuals and businesses in the context of COVID. So, you know, that's kind of the the overview. And those are the things he laid out and he laid them out very generally. So you were watching closely last night, Josh. I'm wondering at first cut what really stood out to you or, you know, what your big takeaway was is as you watched from home. I assume you were at home. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I think uh, the biggest thing that stood out to me really was was the, the I, I guess I would f- describe it as the, the narrow definition of the COVID response through the use of the emergency items, right? So the emergency items are really one way to do this. I mean, not everything that's important is going to be an emergency item. But I thought, you know, listening to the speech overall last night and knowing that you know, COVID is the issue that the state is facing. Is it's the also the issue that the country is facing, and really, all you know, practically, most of the other things you know that you would want to have happen, you know, sending kids back to schools, getting businesses up and running, requires you know more containment and more response to COVID. What I was sort of interested about here, and I think you know, you know, I've been talking about this for you know at least you know probably a couple of weeks now. But yeah, we've been thinking about you know what is what is the legislative response to COVID look like, and what I mean by that is I don't necessarily mean you know even what are they going to do behind the scenes. I mean I assume there's going to be a lot of stuff that goes on about like you know various technical matters that aren't really interesting to most people but are important. But the issue is that if if voters say hey look you know the state's still reeling from COVID, the legislature is now just showing up because of our system to make a response. What are the the visible and the tangible sort of legislative deliverables that people can say, you know what, the legislature did a good job, you know, trying to fix these problems caused by COVID. And I don't know what those are. And I was kind of hoping last night that the governor could help me out a little bit. But when I look at that whole speech is, you know, in some total, it's like, well, what are the COVID specific things? Well, you know, it's civil liability protections on the one hand, you know, for businesses. Okay. You know, we've been talking about that at the national level Alcohol to go sales seem to be the most, and I'm not trying to be tug in cheek. I mean, I'm being serious. It seemed to be the other thing that well, was he most mentioned direct- it explicitly, so yeah. you're not you're well, not I mean, putting the, words in his mouth. Well, it's the most direct. Well, I say it's the most directly COVID related because the other two that seem COVID related: broadband access, um, and uh, what was the other one? I'm thinking of. There's another one besides broadband access that you could say. Oh, and telemedicine. Those are two issues yeah. that have been well, around, which are related. They're related, but they've also these are not new issues. These were not. It's not as though we weren't talking about these before COVID. We're talking about the last session. We would have been talking about broadband access this session, whether COVID happened or not. It may not have been an emergency item, 
But so I think, you know, that's sort of the thing that really struck me. I mean, I, I was sort of, I'm still kind of wondering again, you know, you know, the, the governor is a, is a politician and politicians are always, you know, seeking advantage in sort of public perceptions, which I think is a good thing. I'm not saying that as a negative, but there's a bunch of other elected officials who just showed up and I'm kind of still wondering how that's going to play out and, and what that's going to look like. And I don't think the governor really provided into the state of the state speech, like a clear, uh, sort of definition of what the Texas response is going to look like through the legislative channels. And that's sort of what struck me first. Yeah. I mean, I I was going to say you were there. You were actually, you were, you were lucky, you know, lucky enough to be in Lockhart last night. I mean, what was it like being there on the ground? What struck, what stuck out to you? Last night and all morning. Um, (laughs) For for people that weren't, you know, didn't watch the whole production or, or, you know, only watched on the internet or something. uh, You know, I wound up doing, being part of a brief round table after the governor's state of the state and what we haven't mentioned yet, the Democrats response, which was pre-recorded with Sally Hernandez and Josh Hinkle, who work for KXAN here in Austin. Um, Sally's an anchor and, and Josh does the morning show, their morning news show on, on Sunday mornings that focuses on Texas. Um, and with state representative Jeannie Morrison and state Senator Royce West, who also ran unsuccessfully for the Senate nomination, uh, U.S. Senate nomination in, in the last election. Um, and, you know, so I did, you know, get to see the production from on the ground, which, you know, really actually involves, you know, a lot of rehearsals that wind up not helping an enormous amount because the political leaders weren't there. It wasn't not helpful at all, but, you know, without the elected officials that were going to be on the panel there. They they seem to have no problem. Yeah, no, they, they, <laughs> they did not have any problem. That would be, that would be correct. Um, and, and that, which is, you know, fine, which I, you know, I should have anticipated. I certainly did. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, you know, a, other than that, it involves a lot of waiting around, as you know, from having done these, you know, you did a debate during the last election cycle and things like this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was struck by, I, I think, you know, a couple of things that, you know, maybe evident on the ground there, you know, one is, you know, the high level of production value that went into doing this, you know, in this new format, which is, you know, there was. There were a lot of people thrown at this. It was clearly something uh, that had been discussed quite a bit in terms of production design. Now, you know, we'd be we'd be criticizing them if they hadn't, if it had looked like, you know, yeah. they did this in a barn or, you know, in somebody's desk or a Facebook Live. We'd be saying, you know, how come they didn't put more into this? Yeah. But but I think it was, you know, you had to be struck by the fact that this was this was a pretty big production and, you know. The governor was heavily staffed while he was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, the, the the network was heavily staffed. So, you know, a lot went into this. Um, and I think that fed, frankly, some speculation that, that the governor has larger ambitions. You know, uh, we've talked about that a lot. Maybe it'll come back to it. I, you know, I'm a little skeptical of that. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, they I don't think they would have made any, it wouldn't have made any sense to do this in kind of a, you know, half-assed sort of way. And so, you know, nonetheless, it's hard not to be struck by just all the labor going on there um, and, and what was going on. I mean, I, and I think, you know, in terms of the substance of this, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, related to what you're saying, you know, the degree to which, you know, there was an interesting, to my mind, mismatch from a pure policy perspective from, 
you know, the rhetorical flourishes in the speech itself and, and in the governor's delivery of the speech, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, committee, you know, that, that, that flagged the seriousness and the unusualness of the pandemic and the degree to which, you know, 2020 is everybody's saying was a tough and unusual year. Um, but in the end, the lack of actual policy delivery on that, you know, and you and I've been talking, you know, as you mentioned, we've been talking about, well, you know, what are they going to do? Well, you know, I, you know, I, I think, you know, when we're looking at a, at a vaccine distribution system that has ramped up very slowly, mm-hmm. when we looked at a testing system, which has gotten, gotten better, but still seems to be not quite as thorough as it could be. And the fact that we don't seem to even be talking about, you know, sustained contact tracing. Now experts will say the contact, you know, we've missed the boat on contact tracing. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to me that there are things in terms of healthcare response and, and you know, for that matter, education, you know, the educational situation mm-hmm. very much on people's minds in terms of equipment. I think to reduce all that to basically broadband and civil liability protections mm-hmm. struck me as, you know, I said odd, but what I would say it struck me as strategic and a, and a kind of commitment that I'll be interesting to see the results of. Um, because, you know, we, we've said on this podcast, and I think we've said in writing that, you know, there is this impression that particularly since the vaccine was discovered and you know, there's there's the, the the sense that you know eventually people will get a vaccine, although that eventually is getting stretched out mm-hmm. in some ways. It seems like that it's been a little bit of waiting game of a waiting game from the state from the state leadership, and that you know they will be doing you know the, and the, that a lot of state leaders are essentially kind of waiting out the vaccination in term you know in order to avoid making you know risky policy commitments, and we say risky given the you know, what we know about public opinion yeah, and what we've say, seen what, in public what do you, opinion. What do you mean by risky, Paul? I mean, well, you know, what I mean by risky is that there are still, you know, there are still, you know, substantial, but not, um, you know, not a majority, but to put it the other way, not a majority, but still substantial elements of the governor's political base who are skeptical about the, about the seriousness mm-hmm. of the, of the virus and skeptical about, you know, the degree to which gov- government should aggressively get involved in in addressing the virus. And mm-hmm. in many ways, you know, that was the political story of 2020. And, it, you know, you've done the most recent polling in that because you did the Lyceum poll. So does that, you know, and, and so the Texas Lyceum poll, which you also serve as director for, and you can talk about the Lyceum uh, to a greater or lesser extent as background, but I you know, you guys released a poll just in the last week or so, about a week ago, right? Yeah, about a week ago, last week. Yeah. Uh, I know it seems like a long time ago, but I think it that feels was just last that. week. No, it was just last week, last Thursday, um, not even a week ago. That, that had, you know, a, you know, a ton of data on, you know, perceptions of economic impact. And so I still think that that pattern of, you know, big differences between Republicans and Democrats is is holding out? Am I right about that? But see, that you're right, and I mean, I think you know, this just reminds me of something. Reminds me of something you said, but I'll just I'll just take it. I mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, I mean, the thing is, is that we are still seeing these partisan differences and sort of you know the views of the pandemic and really what I'm talking about, you know, the seriousness of it. You know, it's not as though you know Republican. I mean, I always want to say, and I should say this is very important. 
it's really a very small share of people in general right. who deny the seriousness of the pandemic. It just so happens that they're they're more likely to be within the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. The overwhelming majority of Democrats, 80, 90 percent, depending on what kind of item you look at, whatever, take the pandemic seriously, think it's a serious problem, are doing everything they can. For Republicans, it's you know, it's more mixed, and so that makes it complicated. But but the the thing is, and this is why again, I'm a little surprised that there wasn't a little bit more emphasis and oomph, you know, let's say last night, yeah. is that, you know, the economic evaluations are negative across the board. Um, and so, you know, this might be a way to, and this may, maybe that's what this is. And partially, I mean, it all aligns with what you're saying, which is, you know, part of the the deal here is to not get in businesses wet way and wait it out until everybody gets vaccinated. The problem is, you know, and I think this is true for any politician, right? Like how long can you sit with a sagging economy? How long can you sit on an inefficient vaccine distribution, which is your primary response to a major crisis and, you know, and sort of remain elected. Now, again, Texas is a different place, you know, I mean, but, but ultimately, you know, I mean, the thing that sort of struck me just to kind of come back to what struck you, what's interesting in all this is, you know, on the one hand, you know, the other items that Abbott brought up, you know, talking about, you know, not even the emergency, but just generally the emphasis, talking about abortion, talking about religious liberty, talking about gun rights and, and bringing up immigration and making sure we're touching on all these things. I mean, I was thinking about how this fits in sort of, you know, you go from like the 2017 session to the 2019 session to the 2021 session. And 2019 was so widely interpreted as a response to the 2018 election that was very close and, you know, Democrats saw gains. We go and we're looking at the 2021 session, we're looking at this set of priorities and it's like, well, it kind of feels like we're returning back to like 2014, you know, in some ways, right? Unless you're, you know, I mean, put it this way, if you're from basically just the center of the political spectrum moving rightward. Mm -hmm. There was a little something for everybody in this speech mm -hmm. right now. I think there was the most was for people from center right to the right in terms of all those things you talk about. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, in, in various places I've made lists and checked it and I was marking up the draft mm -hmm. of the governor's speech and all this kind of thing. But I mean, it's a pretty comprehensive list if you were to go back and look at the most important problems facing the state cited by Republicans in our polling, you know, you got abortion, you got the Second Amendment and guns, you got border security, you police. got the police, um, you know, I'm probably leaving one or two things out. I mean, it was a real, you know, pinata, good pinata, like busted wide open if you're a conservative legislator looking for signals from the governor. Now, this is not new. Yes. And this is something, you know, putting it in the speech, you know, it's, I mean, it's just like a State of the Union speech. Having a little something for everybody is something that executives do all the time. So we don't want to be naive and say, you know, he's right. out there making promises, mm -hmm. but he's sending signals. And, you know, in the legislative context, you know, the signal, this is not promise, hey, I'm going to help you do the heavy lifting on this. Right. But it is a suggestion that if you do this, if this, if you can get this to my desk, I'll sign it. Maybe even give you a little pat on the head, huh? And those two things are, are, are not the same. <laughs> right. Right. And so then you go to the emergency items, which looks to me like, you know, you could, you could make a lot of parenthetical comments on each one of these items in terms of parsing out the audience. And, mm -hmm. you know, the broadband expansion, you know, as you were implying, I mean, this has been around long before. I mean, he, the governor pitched this mainly last night in terms of the COVID crisis, as you say, linked it to telemedicine and, and, and 
uh, to some extent, I think, you know, e-learning and, you know, people having to work yeah. at home. Also, easily the most bipartisan thing on here. Right. But, you know, one of the reasons it's bipartisan, I mean, and I was thinking about this, you know, the broadband expansion is the closest thing we have this session to previous sessions. You were mentioning like, you know, 2014, 2015 of the things that were kind of infrastructure business. Yeah, right. right? Where, you're, where coalitions have been building for a long time. This is kind of the water and transportation of 2021. And in right. some senses, you know, you know, to to if you're talking about business environment, and even if you're talking to, you know, regular folks that are you know just irregular enough to pay a ton of attention to this, you know, it seems like a sensible infrastructure move, right? And well, and yeah. it makes sense to people, and it you know, and, and it also you know does avail itself to the kind of broad stakeholder building that we see in these big issues like transportation and water because you know broadband access has a, you know a couple of different basic dimensions there's the dimension that we hear of most often in rural areas of there being actual pipes and right. and actual bandwidth yeah um, but then there's also you know for the for people in the, in a governing position the trickier question of, you know, sort of urban access where infrastructure is not as much of the problem as is pricing. Right. And other, and other modes of access. Um, and so, you know, the broadback yeah, speaks to a lot to of things. Not to mention there's probably an equity overlay there that I'm just going to leave Well, that's what, yeah, now. that's, yeah, exa that's, that's exactly even, right. That's what I mean by price. Yeah. That, well, yeah, that's different. That's, they're, actually diff they're actually different things. I mean, I would say. Well, that. pricing connects to, to the, to the equity yeah. argument. Right. Anyway, so, continue. Um, and then, you know, the defunding, the you know, passing law to prevent cities from defunding police. We talked about that a lot. That has obvious constituencies in, mm -hmm. in the Republican Party. It obviously speaks to, you know, things that we've seen for the last, you know, almost decade in terms of state governments, the, the conflict between state government and localities. And then has the more recent overlay, which again has very little to do with the, the COVID crisis of you know, how, how the law and order issue, public safety wow. and how these and things are lining up. And it's a great, and it, I mean, you know, I mean, just, it's such a great symbolic issue for the governor. Yeah. Of the Republican I mean, it's, Party. it's I mean, it's, I, it's, you know, I talk about, you know, what was I said, you know, what, what would have shocked me yeah. would have been, had this not been an emergency item. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Right. And we could go down the list and take long, you know, bail reform has a constituency again, kind of closely related to that, but also, um, you know, there are some interest group actors in the legislature very involved in that. Election integrity, obviously, um, you know, very undefined, but has a real meaning for Republicans that is very different than the meaning that it has for 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 Democrats, as we've talked about a lot in our polling shown a lot. Mm -hmm. And then civil li you know, civil liability protections for individual businesses, you know, the anti tort, you know, the tort reform, you know, anti you know, anti litigation crowd. In the legislature, very powerful, very influential in the Republican Party, and and this has been something that's been out there yeah. in the business community. It links small and large businesses together, um, and has been out there in the national conversation. So you know all of this. I mean, there's a certain you know if you take this and then you also combine that, as we were saying before the podcast, with you know the kind of golden oldies of you know conservative mm -hmm. favorite you know. Uh, 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 you know, kind of favorite issues that you can map the different elements of the Republican coalition. You know, you could almost take COVID out of the picture completely. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain kind of Groundhog Day, 
nature to this. Yeah. And which it all seems very familiar as a way of stitching together different priorities for different elements of, of the capital community, different elements of the, of the Republican coalition. So like what I'm trying to what I'm trying to figure out in this, and I mean I know it's all these things, so I'm trying to think about the various sort of weights. You know, how much of this is just a continuation? Again, we've written a lot about how a lot of the attitudes of people are now associating with like Trumpism or something, you know, whatever that means. Yeah. Pre-existed Trump. And I mean, especially we know that in Texas for sure. We could go down the list of, of areas and items and results. We have a blog post that kind of does this a little bit of, you know, Trump issues that were around before Trump even existed. So there's sort of sure. like a, a path dependency argument, you know, there in 2018, maybe in the 2019 session, maybe we're a blip on the path dependency, let's say. There's that possibly. There's this other side to me that thinks, well, you know, Trump has now gone and changed things, right? So there's sort of like looking at the past, looking at the future in the sense that, you know, he's taken these things that were Republican issues and he's really given, you know, I would say greater voice an emphasis to them is how I'll, I'll put it. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, what Texas gets to do now is, tech, but, but he didn't have a lot to show for it. Ultimately, there weren't a lot of legislative victories. There's a bunch of executive actions that the Biden administration is going to overturn immediately or soon enough, but Texas is different. I mean, then that's kind of the, I mean, there's some aspect to this where, you know, the a better chance of sticking here. <laughs> maybe so. If you get it done, you know, but that's, but that's the thing though. I mean, there's some, there's an aspect to this where, you know, it's, and I don't mean I don't even mean this critically. It's just the only word I can think of. There's an aspect of this that's sort of so unimaginative, <laughs> you know. I mean, it really is just hey, let's let's deliver these things to people, you know. And then there's another aspect to it that I'm kind of trying to weigh in, which is you know, you got asked on the show after the debate, you know, hey, is is Abbott just running? Is this is this Abbott running for president? Which I thought was an odd question for the after the, after the debate after the state of state. I thought it was an odd question in the context because I don't think any. You know, anybody launches their presidential bid from their state of the state speech, generally sleepy affair for most people, except for people like us. But it's hard not to look at this set of issues and say, you know, Abbott's protecting his right flank for 2022 when there's already been noise on the right from, you know, Republicans who are unhappy with their feeling that he's been heavy handed with his pandemic response, right? A lot of noise. <laughs> and so there's a lot of noise, you know, out there. I mean, I, I'm not looking ahead to 2024. I'm just thinking, you know, there's a lot about this looks like 2022. And then the other piece I think about this is, you know, the 2019 session was such a, a sort of a, a constrained session by, you know, close election results. Ultimately, you know, 2020 wasn't, you know, I mean, it was still a close election. The legislative you know, chamber didn't change in terms of, you know, the composition, the, the partisan composition, but what's going to change is those seats and it's going to become right. more Republican. And so and should we like, ever get the census data, the redistricting will f heavily favor Republicans and, right. you know, and, and, so it's, and it'll be reset. Yeah. So those are like the four kind of broad factors I'm trying to, to weigh out and kind of manage when looking at this and thinking about the overall strategy here and going, going forward. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, whether Greg Abbott is going to run for president or thinking or what his chances are, I mean, I'm going to save that for another day, I think. Sure, please. But I would say this, that whatever the answers to those question are, questions are, it does not hurt Greg Abbott for people to think that he's presidential material or that he's thinking about it or that it even makes any sense that anybody is talking about it. Mm -hmm. Particularly as you think about all these factors that you're talking about without laying them out again. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, is it, you know, is it fine? Is it just perfectly fine if because of COVID, they have to do, they decide they're going to do this from a studio and they do this high production, you know, at least, you know, take a, take a stab at a high production value mm -hmm. speech and, you know, in quote unquote, you know, close to prime time in the evening. Although, you know, I would, I would say one, one thing about the, you know, as much as it, 
I, I think I kind of conveyed this on the air a little bit, but I, you know, you know this. Like we probably even said it here. You know, I, you know, I'm not very interested in talking about Greg Abbott running for president right now. I, you know, I think the chances of him ultimately winning, were he to do so, are pretty small. And it, you know, so all of that. But I would say this: that for people that are, you know, are looking at this. This is probably being inflected by, you know, the historical memory that some people around still have in which, you know, the lore, which seems confirmed by primary accounts, is that George W. Bush's congressional or legislative agenda in 1999 was very much aimed at a presidential run that they were already planning to make mm-hmm. and that it, and that there was a certain amount of contingency the contingency there and they thought that success in Texas in certain areas would provide a necessary foundation for a later run now i i don't think that maps on you know one can find all kinds of ways in that in which that is not similar but it's just structurally similar enough that you know, everybody since then has kind of mapped that onto whoever's the sitting governor. I mean, that was a huge consideration, you know, and thinking about whether Perry was going to run and how he governed and all that. So yeah. I would just put that on the table as giving people, you know, a little bit of slack. I, I don't think it makes an enormous amount of sense. But in terms of just thinking about the sociology of like yeah. how people get, you know, ideas in their heads – I think that's, you know, that's something I want to I want to add one more thing that, you know, is also then I think interesting to the point that you raise about, you know, how we think about is this, you know, a shift towards a more, you know, I mean, in in conventional terms, a less bipartisan, a less practical kind of agenda in 2021 compared to 2019. And that is, you know, I would turn that, you know, a little more conceptually than chronologically and, you know, and, and bring up something last night that came up on the air, which is, which I think there's no way that people that are in the capital community, if they watch that did not notice. And that was the degree to which Senator democratic Senator Royce West, Mm -hmm. who was running for the Senate democratic nomination in 2020 appeared very conciliatory and ready at least conciliatory is maybe too strong a word, but certainly ready to bargain with the governor and, and in, in a sense stuck up for the governor. And in terms of like what it was like to be there, you know, a bunch of the data I prepared was to really underline the different, the different perspectives that Democrats and Republicans have on COVID on rate in particular on race and the discussion really turned towards, you know, everybody's sort of working together and and based particularly on Senator West saying, you know, as he and he said this on the air that, you know, he had just talked to the governor about adding, you know, accountability measures for police, you know, in a way of balancing the kind of, um, you know, anti quote unquote defunding the police measures mm-hmm. that that the governor had declared as as a special item. Now. I think that was a very, it could be a passing moment, but in terms of this kind of conceptual contrast I'm talking about, on one hand, you've got this notion of increasing polarization and the fact that now it's actually more unusual than usual for there to be some kind of middle ground and sense of horse trading and working together in the legislature. Mm -hmm. 
But there's also interesting things going on in both of those coalitions. And I think it's hard not to look at Senator West. And I mean, I don't think he could have sent a signal any clearer that he was willing to play ball with the governor if the governor was willing to play ball with him. Certainly, will I- now that doesn't determine anything. I mean, Senator West is you know in in a minority that has become a numerical minor- minority in the Senate that has become you know increasingly powerless under the reign of Dan Patrick, and you know the cooperation of the of the Republican majority and seating authority to Patrick, as we've talked about on this podcast before. But my every expectation was that that discussion about race uh, was going to be a position where Senator West drew very, very clear contrasts. And that was not what happened. Yeah. I mean, but going to your point, you know, really, I mean, if you're in the minority party with no power, I mean, you'll take a trade for record votes, even if you know you're going to lose most of them anytime. Right. I mean, ultimately, the Democrats are going to be forced to make all kinds of votes on, you know, measures aimed at protecting police and, you know, reducing the ability of cities to basically control their police departments. And he would love to trade that with forcing Republicans to take votes on, you know, measures that would, you know, let's say hold police officers accountable for misconduct. Right. And the truth is, you know, one of those things is definitely going to happen. The other one probably isn't. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, the other thing that I think, you know, I mean, just, you know, we're kind of getting to the end here. We'll wrap this up. I mean, you, know, you brought up the sort of the presentation stagecraft of it all. Maybe this kind of goes back to the presidential thing. I mean, you know, the question seems sort of inappropriate at the beginning of the legislative session when we're just getting started. At the same time, I mean, what you bring up, it's sort of also an unavoidable, you know, we have a primetime address, this like multimedia presentation of, you know, we've got the farmers in the background, you know, we're highlighting the various Texans and all this kind of stuff. The Democrats come back with like basically a campaign commercial, which, you know, was, was, I guess, basically the deal that they got out of this. And so the whole thing did feel, you know, I mean, more like a continuation of the campaign season than it felt like, you know, a kind of sleepy constitutional exercise where the primary audience right. is usually the legislators and the, and the community. You know, the, the and, and, I will, and I will say this, and, you know, we've talked about this before, and I will give this to, you know, to Governor Abbott and to his team. You know, they seem to be, you know, pretty good at picking the, you know, at recognizing these opportunities and taking them. You know, you think back to a couple of sessions ago, I guess, when, they chose to announce, you know, one of their big legislative achievements. I can't remember what it was. You may remember mm. um, that they had worked on that was also a big priority of Lieutenant Governor Patrick's, and they announced it in a in a Facebook Live. I think it was I, I think it was the Show Me Your Papers law. But I think it was yeah, it was like a day, and then like immediately yeah. he did that. Well, I mean, he did that a couple times in that. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, going well, on. Right? In other words, and so you know, I mean. So, you know, we should give them credit for that. I think, you know, now that's not always, you know, we, one can quibble, shall we say over, you know, the, 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 the final, the comprehensive execution of all that, but it, but it, but it points to two other things that we'll take up more as the, as the session goes on. And one is, you know, there were signs last night of the continuing, you know, constant war of maneuvering among the big three among the speaker, the lieutenant governor, and the governor. And, you know, there's a lot that could be read into some of this. Um, and then also, you know, I, I, I think we'd be remiss to not mention the degree to which Senator West kind of struck out, you know, on his own last night as a sign both of, you know, his experience as a legislator, 
Mm -hmm. um, but also as somebody who some would argue got treated a little shabbily by the Democratic Party in, in the last election. In the, in the primary that. election when he was in that race with MJ Hager, which some people well, may, may, may remember. So and I would say not just in the primary election, but then in the aftermath going into the general election campaign was really right. Anyway. So, yeah, so there was a lot, you know, and so I, I think there were a lot of interesting subtext in that, that, you know, I, you know, I'm sort of, you know, putting pins in as we move forward in the session. So with that, uh, we have, wound up another discussion in the second reading podcast thanks to josh for being here today uh, a special name thank out uh, shout out to jacob who is doing our production today from the liberal arts development studio in the college of liberal arts at the university of texas at austin uh thanks for thanks to you for listening and we'll be back next week and stay safe and healthy Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.